at least a week now, but sometime before that, and that's John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I want to begin tonight uh, once again by just reading for us the first 11 verses, and then we'll get into the text itself. Gospel of John chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, that is the words from his prayer in John 17, when he had spoken those things, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And when, therefore, he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, therefore, he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, then let let these go their way, that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus therefore said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? It's been great as we've spent our time in the study of the Gospel of John. If we were to break it up into sections, this final section in John chapter 18 through verse 21 is the last hours of Jesus' life. In fact, by the time that we are finished with these chapters... Jesus will have been arrested, he will have been tried, he will have been sentenced, he will have been executed, he will have risen from the dead and almost even ascended into heaven. So these are the climactic events that close out the telling of the ministry of Jesus Christ from the perspective of the Apostle John as he is led by the Holy Spirit to write what he writes so that you and I will, in fact, be able to do or should do what he wants us to do, and that is to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. It's great to sit here tonight, and Randy, thank you for asking that question, because it was great to hear the testimonies of several of you about the immediacy of what God has done since You've believed upon Jesus Christ. Now, if you were writing a narrative about the life of Jesus Christ, I don't know how you might have written what was taking place had you been there that night that we read these words that John writes. What you would have emphasized, what would it have been that you would have said about what was going on? It's interesting when you think about it like that, And when you look at the other gospel writers and their accounts of the event that John is writing about here in the last hours of Jesus' ministry on the earth, all of them are different. All of them have different nuances that they are sharing, but none more different than John's. 
If you were one of those who were in the group that came to arrest Jesus Christ on that night, and you were writing about the event, surely you would probably describe it as being a great success. We went out, we marched across the valley, and we had a huge victory. Somehow, in your description, you would seem to say that everything that was happening was going on just as you had planned it to go. We met together, we walked across the valley, we went to arrest this man, and we got our man. And the rest is now history. John doesn't do that. Remember, John wants us to know just who it is they are arresting. Just who it is that is being arrested by man. John wants us to believe so that we might have eternal life. John wants us to see Christ. And so John describes this scene very differently. John shows us that while an arrest actually did happen, while Jesus was in fact arrested, while he was led away by this mob of people that was led by the betrayer who John calls Judas, John wants us to know that while it may seem that the group is having a victory. It is actually Jesus who is in complete charge of the whole situation. The arrested one is actually the one who's in charge. In other words, Jesus himself delays himself in the garden while this group is being gathered and then marched over to him. It is Jesus who goes out to meet them. It is Jesus who then is surrendering himself to them voluntarily. And even at the moment of his arrest, Jesus even demonstrates his omnipotence to the soldiers. And his protecting grace to the disciples and even mercy to all those who had come to him as an enemy. So when you think about it, it is actually the height of insanity from a human perspective. The height of insanity. People gathering together with clubs and swords and torches coming to arrest the Son of God. It would be like us gathering together tonight to have some meeting to go and arrest the very one who created us. In fact, Jesus even says to Peter, as recorded in a parallel passage, Matthew 26 and verse 53, that he could actually have his father dispatch 12 legions of angels if he wanted. A legion of angels is 6,000 angels. I could ask my father, and he'll easily dispatch 72,000 angels to come to my aid if I want. This is who man is going to arrest. They're clueless. Who does man think he is coming to arrest God incarnate? And yet, here is Jesus controlling everything. He's allowing himself to be betrayed into the hands of men 
so that you and I might be saved. John wants us to see Christ. John doesn't want us just to see an event. He doesn't want us just to see this moment in time. John wants us to see Christ. And so we are confronted with the senseless betrayal and arrest of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin in a small town just outside of Jerusalem, the greatest gift God has ever given to mankind, and just 20 plus miles south, in south of Jerusalem, in a small town named Kiriath, was born the one who none of us would ever dare name our child after. So close to the birth of Christ was born the betrayer of Christ, Judas Iscariot. Now remember, Jesus on Thursday night had celebrated the Passover with his disciples. That began back in John's gospel in chapter 13. John chapter 13 is the beginning of these final moments with his disciples. Instructions for a saved people, we called that. He's giving them final instructions for when he's going to depart and so that they would be prepared. And on Thursday night, he celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And on that night, Judas is right there and he is identified as the betrayer. And during the Passover meal, he is dispatched. He is sent out to do what he is ready to do and has been ready to do all along. And now, after the supper, Jesus, along with the eleven remaining disciples, go over to the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, to a very special place that we know John refers to only here as a garden. We know it's Gethsemane. The other gospel writers tell us that. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. Ironically, it means the oil press. That's what Gethsemane means. Oil press seems yet another irony that Jesus Christ would begin in a place where the idea in your mind and the picture in your mind is the crushing of something, the crushing to get the oil out. Here is Jesus Christ beginning the final hours of his life on earth in the place that means oil press. By the way, just as a curious side note, it's interesting that God began His redemptive plan in the Garden of Eden, continues it through Gethsemane, like we talked about last week, and Jesus is laid to rest and rise again, once again, in a garden tomb. And so here it is, in the garden, in the midst of the greatest heartfelt turmoil That, as the other gospel writers indicate, the heart of our Lord cries out to His Father for another way to accomplish the redemption of you and I. What had been set out in eternity past is now coming to fruition. There's a mystery in all of that, a mystery in Jesus Christ praying to His Father that if there be some other way, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. There's this mystery going on between sheer divinity of Jesus Christ and the humanity of Jesus Christ. All things are possible with God, and if it could be done another way, then make that happen. And yet in the midst of it all, Jesus... In his humanity, 
was strengthened to resolutely go to the cross. He's pleading with the Father, while at the same time setting a great example for you and I, that victory over any kind of temptation comes through the constant watchfulness in prayer, constant obedience to the Father, no matter the cost. I liked what Ed said. I told my family that I was saved and I didn't care what they thought. That's the idea. It really doesn't matter the cost. This is exactly what we see on display here in John chapter 18 in his narrative about what's going on with Jesus Christ. The resolute obedience of Christ, no matter the personal cost to himself, with the result that God the Father is glorified through him. Remember, that was his final thing. Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify thee. That was his prayer. The first thing he said in his his words when he was praying to God the Father in John 17, I just want you to be glorified. And so my obedience to you is a reflection of the reality of what it is that you might be glorified. It doesn't really matter what it costs me. Now the other writers tell us that after the third time Jesus prays, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to the disciples and they're sleeping. And he wakes them, telling them to get up because it's time for his betrayal. The time of his betrayal has come. He could see, I'm sure, the torches coming down the east side of Jerusalem there, coming toward over the Kidron to where he was. He could see them coming through the valley, the the lamps lit, the mob on their way, the people coming to the garden as they are led by Judas himself. And so as we we focus in on this tonight in John chapter 18, I want to highlight just a couple of features. We're not necessarily going to learn a principle that you and I can put into practice, something like we've learned in Romans and and Paul lays out with clearness for us in some of the epistles where we can go, yeah, I can do that, I'm going to obey that, I'm going to do that. Right here, we just see Christ. We see Christ. And so I want to highlight just two features here in this narrative. One is the cunning of Judas. And two is the composure of Christ. The cunning of Jesus and the composure of Christ. And let's just begin then with this first one. And we, in in order to get this picture for us, we need to look at the other Gospels as well. So I want to turn for a moment back to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. If you, if you want to know where all these are in the Gospels, it's Matthew 26, Luke 22, and Mark chapter 14 is where we get the parallel accounts of John chapter 18. But I want to look at Mark chapter 14, specifically right here in verse 43 to 46. Notice what Mark says. Immediately while he was still speaking, Now, of course, John jumps into the narrative and Jesus is there and they're on the scene. There's no, none of these other details. The other writers give us a few details about Jesus going to the disciples, waking them. Can't you stay awake? He goes back to pray, comes back, he goes back to pray again. John doesn't give us all that. And here it is, Jesus, who was in the garden, which you get in 32 to 42, and the the accounting of that. And immediately while he's still speaking to the men... Judas, one of the twelve, comes up. 
You can stop right there for a moment. Jesus, of course, has been speaking. He's talking about speaking to his sleeping disciples. They're all asleep. They're all unprepared. They're not ready for what is about to happen. And I think sometimes when we read that and we read the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we, give, we, we kind of go, gosh, guys, can't you? I mean, this is a serious moment. Can't you stay awake for a little bit of time? And we give them a hard time. And in fact, we can, I think we can actually sympathize with them because they had a very tense, busy day, busy week hanging out with Jesus. And furthermore, it's after midnight. Now, I know some of you are night owls. You like those hours. I particularly don't like those hours. It's after midnight. They just finished a long walk. It's probably warm. They've just eaten a big meal. All of that converges at one moment, and, all of a long, and along with all of their lack of understanding as to the severity of the moment and what is going on, they still have earthly thinking. They still think Jesus is going to set up some kind of earthly kingdom. All of that comes together so that instead of praying, they're exhausted, they're sleeping. And so Jesus is waking them up, and while he's doing that, Judas arrives. Now, if we were watching one of those movies, this is when that music starts, right? That background music that you know something's going to happen. That's where it is. This, is. this is the intensity of the moment. It's Friday morning, early. We know that Jesus is going to be crucified before Friday's over. In fact, he's going to be in the grave before the sun goes down. You'll, you'll have his arrest, you'll have his trial, you'll have his execution, and all of that's going to happen in just a few short hours. And it all starts with the arrest a little after midnight, Friday morning. And Mark's gospel tells us that Judas is one of the twelve. That's shocking, isn't it? That's just shocking. This is the the twist that takes place in a good thriller, that your jaw drops, you go, no way. You know, one of those good thrillers that keeps twisting and turning, and in the end, the guy who did it is not the guy you think who did it. This is the deal. Judas, one of the twelve. That, that's the intent of what Mark is saying here. This is Judas, one of the twelve. How could someone so close to Jesus do such an evil thing? early when he arrives he's already gotten all the people together to bring them together in this final plot in fact back in John chapter 13 verse 30 when we were studying that you may remember that it said this he went out and it was night he went out and it was night that means that he went out even before the new covenant of the communion was instituted He leaves and he makes his pact with the Jewish leaders. All right, guys, how much are you going to give me if I give him up? What's the cost? And now they're all with him. Nearly a thousand people. When we read this, we don't think that the group is that large, but it's nearly a thousand people. 600 plus men were in a Roman cohort. Judas comes with a Roman cohort some of the chief priests, the Sadducees, people like that, they're all now following Judas to the place where he 
has been with Jesus several times in the ministry life of Jesus. They're away from the city. No unnecessary commotion going on. It's clandestine. It's a secret operation. Judas is leading the pack. How could he do that? How could Judas do that? Well, there's one thing we know about Judas. He was driven by greed. Judas is so hungry for money that he'll do anything to get it. He's the one who was in charge of the money box with the disciples. And furthermore, he, pos- he was possessed by Satan now, so he's no longer really in control of himself. He's no longer in control of all the things he's doing. The Bible says in Luke 22, verse 3, Satan entered into Judas. So he's satanically possessed. And plus, Judas' heart grew bitter over time. He grew bitter over time, not getting what he really wanted in his heart. All he wants is money. He wants his pound of flesh. He wants his compensation for what he believes were wasted years following one who said they were a Messiah to set up some kind of kingdom, and the kingdom doesn't seem to be coming about. This one's talking about going away. He isn't getting the exaltation, the personal glory that he hoped for. So here comes Judas, Satan-possessed. And yet he's on a God-ordained mission. Now let that sink in. He is Satan-possessed, fully engaged in his own sinfulness, Satan-possessed, yet on a God-ordained mission. He's coming with the Christ-rejecting leaders. And the Christ-rejecting crowd are all there. They're all there with clubs. They're all there with swords. They're there with their lighting instruments. And notice what he does. Notice what Judas does in this God-ordained moment. Verse 44, now he who was betraying him, it's almost as if Mark can't even say the name again. The other day I was watching the news of this poor gal who was killed in Utah and the police chief was giving a record of the, what had taken place and he said, I'm only going to name this person once. That's almost what like Mark is doing. He's not even naming Judas again. Now the one who was betraying him. He had given them a signal saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he's the one. Seize him. Lead him away under guard. It seems rather strange, but a signal seemed as if to be necessary for the plan to succeed, at least in their mind. In fact, Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus had nothing about him to distinguish him outwardly from any other human being. He, he wasn't, he wasn't this, this super kind of person that you notice in the crowd of anything. He was, like, he was like everybody else in his looks. He wasn't stately in some kind of way. He had no form that we should look upon him, like Isaiah says. In other words, in his humanity, he was nothing special. And it was dark, night. And so there needed to be a sign to ensure no mistaking. No mistaking they got the right person. They didn't want to get the wrong one. They thought that maybe the disciples might try to give up some wrong guy, even though they didn't even know Judas was the guy who was betraying him. They certainly might have tried to confuse the Romans. So Judas comes up with a sign. It's rather unbelievable, really. 
He's so distorted, so wicked in his heart that he has to figure out a way in order to make sure Jesus is taken. All of the things that he could have done, he could have chosen any sign and yet he chooses a kiss. He's so twisted and demeaned in his own mind, he chooses a kiss. It's rather interesting in his cunningness. Don't worry about it, the one I kiss will be the one. You grab him, don't let go. Seize him. Put him in custody. It's interesting. A kiss was a sign of affection. It was a sign of affection. A sign of deep, close relationship. In ancient times, that's what it was about. In ancient days, inferiors would kiss the back of a hand. Someone who's, who's less than somebody else, they would just kiss the back of a hand out of homage to that person if you were above the level of a servant you might be able to kiss the front of the hand slaves wouldn't even kiss the hand they would have to kiss the feet they're so low on the totem pole and those who would come in for to 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 beg for mercy upon someone who was over them some angry ruler who they owed something to they would kiss the feet begging for pardon All of that was a sign of great reverence, but an embrace, a kiss on the cheek was a sign of close affection. It was a sign of unselfish love. It was a sign of a close relationship. I think that's the most cunning act of all. I don't think anything could be worse. For Judas... It was just a weak attempt to conceal his real character. Judas was just a God-hater. That's who he was. It's bad enough to betray a friend. It's a whole inconceivably other thing to have sold out the Son of God. Matthew 26, it tells us that Jesus said to Judas, Friend, do what you have come for. Friend, do what you... It's an interesting word, that word friend there. That word friend there doesn't mean intimate relationship. It means just a companion, but not an intimate friend. Now, what would give Jesus the strength to stand and take all of that? We know what it is, right? He had spent time in prayer. On the human level, he had spent time in prayer. He had spent time aligning his will with the will of the Father. Father, if there's some other way, let this cup pass. But not my will, your will be done. That's what prayer does. It's us aligning our will with the Father's. He was set to do the will of the Father no matter the cost to himself. It wasn't about him. It was about the glory of the Father. Nothing was going to move Jesus from the plan. Obedience was the road to the glory of God, and that was the only road that Jesus was going to take. Judas was the false disciple. Judas was driven by greed. Judas was driven by deceit. Judas was driven by hypocrisy. But Jesus Christ, he is driven by doing the will of the Father. So that's the cunning of Judas. There, bringing the band of those, one of the twelve, betraying Jesus with a kiss. 
Now go back to John chapter 18. Because now I want us to see the composure of Jesus Christ. Then I'll just read for us again, verses 5 to 11. They answered him when he said, Whom do you seek? Jesus said to them, uh, they said, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. The he there, by the way, is not in the original language. The I am is the to be verb. It's, it's, it's the idea of uh, I am existence. I am. Judas also was betraying him, and he was standing with them. And when therefore he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again, therefore, he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. You can stop right there for now. Did you ever play that joke with your friends when you were on the school ground and there was a little heated argument going on and someone was threatening you and you would hold your hand out and you'd say, you know what this is? Controlled fear. You know, I'm not shaking, right? That's controlled fear, right? For Christ... This isn't controlled fear. This is truly fearlessness. This is fearlessness. He's not fearful in the face of the crowd. He will not be fearful in front of his accusers. We will see no fear in Jesus Christ as he is nailed to the cross. There is no fear at all in Christ. Nothing but fearless composure. Why? Because this is the plan of the Father. This has been the plan of the Father all along. And verse 4 tells us that Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon Him. It doesn't say after that, tried to figure out which tree was the biggest in the garden that He could hide behind. It doesn't say that. It says, Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon Him, went forth and said to them, Jesus presents Himself. Jesus is the one in control. Jesus is the fearless one. It's interesting that only John includes this part of the night. In the details that He gives. Jesus asked them, Whom do you seek? And then they answer, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says, Okay, I am. Then we are told that the arresting group, in the next verse, we are told that when they hear this, they draw back and they fall to the ground. Verse 6. Now remember, this is no small crowd of people. This is a crowd of people ten times bigger than this church right now. That's a massive group of people. They draw back and they fall to the ground. And they apparently remain there until Jesus asks them a second time, Whom do you seek? In verse 7. Now you can pick up a lot of books. You can pick up a lot of commentaries on the Gospel of John. And there's a lot of speculation as to what took place in this moment. And in fact, a lot of commentators land on saying that this was simply due to shock. That the group was just shocked. In other words, 
they attempt to explain that this was some kind of surprise that Jesus, the one whom they were coming to arrest, would be in fact the first one that they come upon and that he would actually clearly identify himself as the one they were looking for. And because of that, they're all just shocked and they fall down like a bunch of dominoes. Now I would tend to agree that being stunned in a moment can cause some very odd reactions. But this is a group of a thousand people. I don't believe that John would include this detail simply so that we can see that they were shocked and fell down like a bunch of people in a chain reaction. I don't think that's why John put it here. I don't think that's why the Holy Spirit allowed John to put it here. Remember, John wants us to see Jesus is the Christ. And what better way to show his full identity than through the powerful proclamation of his name, I am. The very same name given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asked God, who do I tell him sent me? I don't. I don't see you. I, I don't know who you are. Who do I tell Pharaoh and the Hebrews who it is that sent me? And he said, you tell them that I am sent you. You tell them I am sent you. It fully means the self-existent one. The self-existent one. Remember back in John chapter 6 when Jesus gets in the boat? When the storm's happening and Jesus walks in the water, gets in the boat, and everything calms down. He says, why are you fearing? I am with you. Existence just got in the boat. What do you have to fear when existence is there? This is Jesus. This is existence himself is there. I am the existent one. And so when Jesus says who he is, nothing could be more shocking, nothing could be more life-altering than to hear that. It's almost as if John is describing Jesus as if a piece of his glory was, was in a moment's time immediately radiated and they see it and all men just fall at their feet at the glimpse of who Jesus actually is. It's like Isaiah who sees God in his throne and knows immediately he's a man in the presence of holiness. Hearing just the name uttered by Jesus Christ, the God-man saying his identity, who he is, immediately throws the arresting party into complete confusion and renders them helpless before him. They can't even answer him until he asks again, All along, Jesus is in control. He's in control of it all. He's willingly, remember this is God himself, he's willingly and voluntarily offering up himself in the place of us. And all along, Jesus is protecting, Jesus is ensuring the care for his own. Jesus John tells us that in verse 8 and 9. Jesus says, I told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. And he said that just so that 
you and I would know that prophecy is being fulfilled in that very moment, that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost none. Where did he say that? The prayer in John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, Father, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here it is, Jesus, that fulfillment, partially the fulfillment of his prayer, even then being answered as not one of them is lost. It's a great promise to us. There are several places in the New Testament that confirm that God promises to protect those who are his. I'll just give you a few verses. I'll read them to us. Hebrews 2, verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What a comfort that is to us, that Jesus knows exactly what we're going through, that he has suffered all those kinds of things himself in his own humanity, and he can come to our aid. Hebrews seven twenty-five. He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Satan is the accuser of the brother, and he's always there accusing, accusing, accusing. And yet there is Jesus Christ always before making intercession for you and I, so that the accusations of the evil one do not stick. Second Timothy one. Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, Paul said, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I love that verse. There's no sense in which we need to doubt whether God will actually accomplish what he said he will accomplish. He's going to use the same power to do it that he used in order to conform everything. Jude 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. All of those verses tell us that Jesus is completely effective in his preserving grace with us. He loses none. That's a fearless and that's a faithful composure of Jesus Christ in the midst of deep trouble. He is the Christ. I love this last part. Verses 10 and 11. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus therefore said to Peter, put the sword in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? None of the other writers include the name of who did this. You read the other writers, Matthew 26, Luke 22, Mark 14. They don't include the name of the slave here. John does. And of course... We could guess it if we were taking a multi-question test. We would know who it was. It's Peter. Impulsive, do-it-my-way Peter. 
By the way, John's not describing a big sword here. Sometimes when we think of swords, we think of the big ones we see on these medieval shows that maybe you see or something like that. The word used here is for little daggers. It's makarios. It's, it's a small knife, a small dagger-like knife. And of course, Peter, I'm sure, like all of us who had been there, who were clueless to the situation, would have lashed out just to protect Christ. And Jesus says, put it away, Peter. Put it away. Why? Because the Father's plan isn't accomplished that way. Now listen, this isn't the main point, I don't think, but I think it's worth just a second to think about at least. God's plans are not accomplished through our means. Let me say that again. God's plans are not accomplished through our means. God's desire is that we follow Him. That's what, he, that's what he wants. Follow me. We go his way. And I, I was thinking about this just in my own life. Far too often in my own Christian walk, far too often I realize when trouble comes, I go to God, I pray to God, I, 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 I do what Jesus was doing in the garden. I, I go and I, I entreat God. All's good so far. Everything seems to be right, in, at least in my approach to the situation. And then by God's design and by God's providence and by God's working and by God's will, nothing seems to get fixed. Nothing goes the way it seems, or at least as I have set it out to be fixed in my mind. And so what happens? Pull out my sword. Take things into my own hands and start to fix it myself. Rather than simply following after the will of God in obedience. Or too often like Peter. Take out my sword. Start hacking away at all the things... It seemed to be a problem. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. God's will is not accomplished. Don't do that. So John here is saying to us, listen folks, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is here in this moment, this this very emotion-filled moment. Knowing all that is going to happen. The betrayer is there. One so close to him that nobody else knew and Jesus didn't rat him out. He knows it all's coming. And yet he voluntarily, willingly, offers himself up Showing who he is. Showing all of them mercy. Protecting those who are his own. So that you and I would understand that he is the Christ. Betrayed by those who are so close and yet completely composed to accomplish the will of the Father. Absolutely amazing. He is the Christ indeed. We'll get more next time. Well, let's... uh...
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we are inadequate in ourselves to comprehend all the realities and details of even what is here. Sure, there is so much that we have missed, nuances and details and areas in which we could ponder for days. Just the reality of how you, being God in the flesh, could in fact even allow yourself to be taken by fallen humanity. And yet in the graciousness of your mercies, you even then exposed yourself so that they might see you for who you were. And I believe in that, even a merciful act that others might believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I trust that we see that here in all of its vividness. I trust that we would believe it in every nuance. And I trust that we would follow your example and follow your will, even in our own life, that you might be glorified and honored through it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.